Welcome to Dangerous Wisdom, a podcast for the soul and a gateway to the mind of nature and the nature of mind. This is Dr. Nikos, your friend, the neighborhood soul doctor, and this week we have a very special guest, Derek Jensen. Derek is the author of over 25 books, most recently Bright Green Lies, which he co-authored with Lear Keith and Max Wilbert. There's also a documentary, eponymous documentary, if you will, um, same name by Julia Barnes, lovely to watch. And uh, Derek, why don't we start with this most recent book and give us your kind of basic feel for it. I've heard you give a, a kind of one-line summary of it, 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 it in uh, various ways, but uh, what would you like to say about it? What's most important to know about it? Um, I don't remember the one-line summary, unless the one-line summary is, um, this way of living cannot last, and after it's over, I would prefer that there is more of the natural world left rather than less, but that's really a summary of all my work. Uh-huh. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. This one, um, this book started, gosh, 12, 13 years ago. Uh, I was asked to debate a bright green and I'd never heard of the term before. Um, and bright greens believe that technology can, uh, save the planet basically that we can continue this way of life and if we just recycle if we just uh use switch from fossil fuels to solar and wind that um everything will be fine that we can continue this way of life and nature won't be destroyed and I told the people that I, I this was put together by Orion, and I told them that I didn't want to do the interview unless we could do it uh, written, because I knew that the person on the other side was going to make stuff up, and I wanted to be able to fact check everything he said, which is very hard to do when you're having... You know, like right now, I can tell you, you know, there are only uh, three desert tortoises left on the planet. And, you know, you can say, well, that doesn't seem right to me. And and then we could just get, yeah, there's only three. And you say, no, there's, you know, however many there are. But neither one of us has the facts to back it up. But if we did this verbally, I mean, I'm, I'm sorry, if we did this written. So, uh but the other guy didn't want to do it that way. It was He was, said he would only do it over the telephone. And so we started to do it. And it was exactly like I said. He just started making stuff up. Like, um, it is possible to have a society that's basically like we have now, where 100% metals are recycled. And I said, no, it isn't. He said, yes, it is. No, it isn't. And the whole... So the thing never got published because it was just so stupid to, for us to go back and forth like second graders. And when the thing was over, um, when I got off the phone, I spent like five minutes looking up uh, recycling and discovered the numbers, which I don't remember now. But basically, uh, copper is one of the most recyclable materials. And let's say 90% of current copper is recycled. 
but still recycled copper only accounts for like 30% of the copper in use because of increasing demand every year because the economy keeps expanding. And I was like, well, this is ridiculous. And then I really started looking at the bright green claims and I thought I have to write a book about this um, because this is just absurd. So that's the sort of not particularly interesting story of how the book came to be. And then the larger question, which is probably what I should have started with, is that over the last 30 years, uh, the environmental movement has uh, been transformed. Once it was about saving wild places and wild beings, but now it's been transformed into being about sustaining this culture a little bit longer. And um, that's, you know, if you, if you think about it, if you can get a million people marching on the streets of New York or Paris or Washington, D.C., and if you ask them why they're marching, they'll say to save the planet. But if you ask them for their demands, they'll say, we want, uh, we want uh, subsidies for the wind and solar industries. So it's absolutely extraordinary that this, this movement to protect the planet has been turned into a lobbying arm of industrial capitalism. That's an extraordinary coup. And so we, me, Max, and Lier wanted to do something about this and wanted to reclaim our movement and make it back what it was about before, which is about protecting wild places and wild beings. And, and we also uh, just wanted to point out that we are being sold solutions that cannot work and even if they did work would not uh help the natural world at all and we can go into any of those details you want or we can go you know we can talk about other books we can talk about whatever you want to talk about so whatever you want to do if you want to go more detail we can do that if you want to go a different direction that's fine too yeah yeah one of the things that you you did there i mean there's a lot going on one one of the things that you're recognizing is an old philosophical problem that um Chogyam Trungpa, a Tibetan philosopher, called the problem of spiritual materialism. And and what it says is any idea, any politics, any practice, whatever you got, doesn't matter how nice it sounds, it can be used to perpetuate and even deepen structures of power and oppression, both internally and externally. It doesn't matter what it says on the surface. So we can pick that you could cherry pick the easy ones you know christianity is so easy that jesus doesn't have anything about conducting crusades in there and it seems to be that he's interested in the poor and the weak and so on but we can take it and we turn it into the prosperity gospel and all the rest yes go ahead oh my favorite story about how christianity got messed up is the homoousians and the homoousians do you know about them <laughs> no no i don't they're great well they're, they're ridiculous um so there's the homoousians and the homoousians were killing each other. This is, I don't know, a couple hundred years after, after Christianity started. So yeah. two, three hundred current era or whatever. And they're killing each other in the streets. And the difference, one of them is well, the homoousians are spelled however it's spelled. And then the homoousians have an umlaut. <laughs> and one of them, I don't remember which one, believes that the the Holy Trinity is three beings in one. And the other believes that it's one being in three. And in addition to this, one of them believes that, they, I don't remember which one, believes that the fires of hell are real fires. And the other one believes that the fires of hell 
are spiritual fires, not not the sort of thing that you have in a wood stove. And they're killing each other over this. And it got so bad that they had to call this big council and get everybody together. And finally, they all agreed that they would stop killing each other because each side recognized that the other side would find out soon enough whether the fires of hell were spiritual or literal. And this, this is only 200 years. You know, it's just, it's, it's extraordinary how fast this happens. What's the term again? And can you, can you tell me more about it? Because I think that's one of the most fascinating. It's that's something I've seen all the time. And I've put fairly, uh, not very sophisticated language around it, but I really want to have this stuck in my head because I think it's an incredibly useful tool. It it is. Uh, it's a way to to try to capture, in in part, unconscious dimensions that are going to affect our spiritual life as well as our cultural life. You know, so so when you say this only took, takes a few hundred years in in a movement, but within our own lifetime, we're doing it all the time because under the guide of oh look, I'm uh, I'm meditating and here's my spiritual practice. But as soon as I get off the cushion, I'm the biggest jerk. You know, I'm I'm the same. I haven't changed. And even, as you've pointed out, sometimes people will use spiritual practice as a rationalization for not being engaged in problems in the world. And this, too, is part of spiritual materialism. I've got to have the reason, right? <laughs> Just yesterday, a friend of mine was telling me, I, I, was, I was talking with a friend about something she's writing, and she wrote this line about how when we feel a particular charge about something— it often means that when somebody else does something and we feel particularly a particular charge about what they've done, we often, that means that we ourselves have been triggered and we have our own emotional issue. And I stopped her when she got there and I was like, wait a second, you know, I really like what you're writing, but this particular line, it's like, it's also possible they're just being a jerk. And, and it was, it was a great conversation where she said, yes, I recognize that. And I need to put in some modifiers but it would interrupt the flow of the actual thing she was writing too much to do it. But she said, and she works in a therapeutic setting. And she said, there are all sorts of, especially sort of therapists who are higher in the hierarchy who have abused her that way, where they do something that's a jerk move. And then she says, wow, that was a jerk move. It's like, well, you've got issues around that. Maybe you need to have some more therapy. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. So they're, yeah, they're using, they're using, so that's a good example, because I said any practice, any politics, any religion, doesn't matter what it is, they're using what should be a process for liberating the mind from neurosis and self-deception. They're furthering their self-deception. I'm not a jerk. You've got issues. It's just classic. So this is a catch-all term that, you know, tries to get at what, I guess, you know, what we could call uh, ideology, you know. I mean, it's it's just a different way of talking about it, but also reflecting how it, it takes place in our own life. And so there's a spiritual materialism of environmentalism. That's part of what you're touching, that the it, this whole thing got captured because it's going to get captured. I mean, you know, Bateson talked about this too, right? Ecology sounds nice, but it's just going to get captured. Uh, can you, I don't understand... Um, and this is probably very simple. Why is it called spiritual materialism? I don't, I don't understand that the relationship between that name and, and the process. I think it's, 
I think I haven't seen him explain why he coined the term that way. I get the feeling that there's two aspects of it. One, he had been transplanted into a consumer culture, and it was still referred to a little bit as materialistic at that time. So it was part of turning um, uh, the spiritual process into uh, when you you, uh, the way Plato would have described it is we're we're starving and we're trying to eat shadows. So there's this consumption and try to 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 make it make sense to us, Um, and. Or, or how do you fill a void with a void? It's the same idea, right? So I think he was saying that we we would turn our spirituality because it seems so difficult to to look inward and and look at things that are uncomfortable about ourselves. Just turn it into another consumer, you know, entertainment. But it's also that these things, like in the unconscious, these unconscious dimensions, they're not visible. We don't see what's pushing us, and so we materialize it. That is, we find ways to solidify. Um, and get ground under our feet instead of dealing with the precariousness of life and the uncertainties and so on. So I feel like it's a, a mix of both. But the important thing is just to understand, I think, the concept. Which is, it's just saying that however nice the idea may seem, the idea may be liberation itself, democracy, something really nice, that still can be turned by the wiles of the human psyche into something that will be oppressive. It and so be turned Chris- into of Iraq. Uh, of, of Iraq, right. Yeah, with the, um, you know, that was bringing freedom and democracy to... Absolutely. That's why you go to war. It's like you were, you, you, you've acknowledged too in your work before that we need, we need to have a justification. And the greatest justification is God, of course, but you don't need that. It can be democracy. That can be one that you use. But it's powerful to have these justifications. And so we'll use our very spiritual beliefs or values, cultural values, whatever it is, to bypass our own self-deceptions and to do bad things because we want to do them. There's something in us wants, want them, wants them to be done. And it's unconscious. It's important to see that, that we don't see that. I mean, those therapists, when they're saying that at that moment, uh, when they're telling the person, oh, you've got issues, they re- really are to, uh, unconscious of their own shadow. Uh, yeah, I'm a jerk. They, they don't really want to see that. It seems relevant to some of what we're talking about, too, because I don't know if you've ever seen, I think it might be the first psychoanalytic article about the ecological catastrophe was 1972. Which is, it seems like on, on the one hand, you're like, okay, yeah, there's a lot going on with, you know, Clean Water Act and all this stuff. But on the other hand, like, wow, it's kind of interesting that that, that far back, the, the, here was, his name was Harold Searles. And, and he said, look, this is the biggest threat. You know, forget nuclear war, forget polluting ourselves to death. We're, we're just going to collapse the ecologies. And he was saying, I don't understand why people, uh, why people, why psychologists and psychiatrists don't want to talk about this, because there are clearly unconscious dimensions to people doing this. I mean, you don't think that they're just like fully consciously doing what they're doing. There's something going on. I think, you know, t- to me, that seems like when you, I think you've said, well, I don't see how we talk about it without talking about, say, sociopathology or, or psychopathology and power. I think he wanted to say, well, yeah, but you, then you have to talk about the unconscious dimensions of those. I don't know if you've thought much about, the, you know, what, what, the, what the psychoanalytic uh, or depth psychology dimensions uh, have to have to say about our situation but well it's it's that's really um i it's really central to all of my work and my thought i mean this is this is i'm so delighted to be doing this interview in great measure because um this you know if 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 i look at the the the, the people I read who influenced me most profoundly 
before I started writing, they would be people like Eric from um, his book, Anatomy of Human Destructiveness is one of the 10 most important books I ever read for my, how, how, and this, this actually also tells you about my relationship with my mom um, that I got that book for Christmas one year. And, you know, it was, and it was one of my favorite Christmas gifts she ever got me. Um, yeah, the shirt's really nice, mom, but this book, Anatomy of Human Destructiveness, that's where it's at. And um, uh, R.D. Lang, you know, but I also have to put in the obligatory that R.D. Lang was personally an abusive jerk. I mean, it's so interesting to me. Also, he's just a great example of this, that he was able to describe these abusive dynamics so well at the same time he was beating his kids. Um, anyway, so that's where I really, that's where I live is, is in that sort of intersection of ecology, um, philosophy, psychology, um, you know, man's search for meaning was really important to me when I was younger too. Um, and I'm trying to think of, of, I mean, there's a bunch of other really famous names. Oh, Rollo May. I read, I read all that stuff in my, in my twenties and it was very important to the development of my thought. Um, so yeah, that's, that's, um, you know, obviously I, I don't take a scholarly, uh, I don't have a PhD in psychology, um, but that stuff really influences my work profoundly. Mm. And I remember reading um, Jung's uh, Memories, Dreams, Reflections, too. That was like the best book I read of 1984 or whatever year it was. <laughs> um, but yeah, this stuff, this stuff is it's, it's fascinating to me horrifying too of course but fascinating to me and then that's that's another thing is that you know a question that i've just been driving my life in many ways since i was a child with my father being really abusive was if his behavior is making him happy why is he doing it and you know i i basically in many ways have transferred that same question to if the murder of the planet is making us happy why are we doing it Obviously, if it was making us happy, that would still would not be a good reason to destroy the planet. But it's not even making us happy. So why the hell are we doing it? And it's so funny. You know, I've interviewed uh, two other people who have been very important to my, to my thinking were Judith Herman, R. Judith Herman, and Robert J. Lifton. And I asked both of them a couple of questions. I asked, well, many questions, but a couple of questions I asked both of them. One of them was, so do perpetrators actually believe their lies you know do when robert j lifton talks about a claim to virtue how before you can commit any atrocity you have to have what he called a claim to virtue so i asked judith herman do domestic violence perpetrators believe no i didn't actually hit you 30 seconds after they hit you and do ask lifton do perpetrators of genocide really believe the claim to virtue that they're not committing mass murder and genocide they're purifying their race they really believe that and both of them laughed and said i don't know <laughs> you know it's like and these are the world's experts on this it's like who knows what they believe really and i mean i think it's probably not a fair question because on one level they certainly do believe it like you said that in that moment the that, those therapists were like no you're triggered i'm not a jerk 
But there's another level at which they have to know, which is why they're which is why they're so reactive. And the other question I asked them, which is a different subject, but it's just very interesting to me. They both had the same response again. I said, why is it that some people go through trauma and it opens them out and they become a better person, actually, and other people go through trauma and then they replicate the trauma onto other people all the time. And then, of course, some people do both. You know, why is it that people have these varying responses to, to trauma? And they're both, again, just like, got me. That's the mystery of life, ain't it? Anyway, I don't know what you want to do with any of that message. <laughs> well, I think one of the things just to recognize, because it's, it's interesting, because when we think about people's capacity to institute the kinds of changes that we know on any reasonable reflection would be needed to to begin healing the world and healing ourselves in mutuality with the world instead of the way we always are trying to, we're takers, you know. So it gets us into this self-help catastrophe that even as we try to help ourselves, we just degrade the planet further. So there's to get to this mutuality, there must be things that we'll have to face that are unconscious in it. And I wonder too then about the the sorts of timescales because so if there is like you said there's something that comes up for people a reactivity that allows a mechanism of repression or suppression to work, you know if if I if I know that I'm going to see something I don't like or the, see the evidence or whatever it might be that is uncomfortable for me I just won't look. In order to get the kinds of changes that you're calling for in your book, how how are we going to get people to look? Well, I don't. I don't think we do because I look. I look at. So, insofar as my life is not a mess, and my psyche is not a mess, I'm not claiming it's not a mess. I'm saying, insofar as it's not a mess. It's not a mess because I worked really hard through my 30s with <clears throat> taking a lot of time, taking many years, and doing a lot of therapy and falling apart. And most people don't want to do that work. I've got a few things I want to say. One of them is that years ago I was talking to a bunch of fisheries biologists about whether we should just, if we, if we, if we're not going to hurt any human beings with it and they're not functional for uh, the industrial system to take out those moral questions to sort of reduce it to one, one variable, is it better to let dams collapse on the mo- on their own or to blow them up? And once we removed all the other variables, and made it so they didn't think I was a terrorist. They're like, from the perspective of the fish in the river, oh, take them out. Because, and this is going to have a point, don't worry. Because a dam collapsing is just a big flood, and rivers flood all the time. And the problem is not even that there's a dam on a river. The problem is that there's 2 million dams on rivers in the United States, because rivers dam all the time. They, you know, a rock slide, a lava flow, that happens. And I believe the word for that is some sort of stochastic event. I mean, there's, or it's a cataclysm, you know, there's a cataclysm and 
I mean, there was the Missoula floods back 12,000 years ago or 10,000 years ago or something. They were because there was this huge ice dam formed in Western Montana. And eventually the, the water behind the ice dam got so high that it floated the ice dam and made it collapse. And then nine times, I believe, as much water as all the other fresh water flowing in the world rushed down the Columbia all at once. Huge flood. And the river survived that. So the point is, we're almost to the point, one of the people I talked to said that we misdefine rivers entirely, that we perceive rivers as being sort of static. You know, you go to the river and there's the riverbank, and then you go to the river a year later and there's the riverbank. But I've seen some wonderful maps of what the Mississippi used to look like. And they'll have like red for one color, yellow for, for one year, yellow for another year. And it writhed all over the landscape. That's what rivers do. They're not supposed to just be channeled. And so this woman who works on this, this, uh, this fisheries biologist who works on a river up in the Olympic Peninsula said to me that every time the river that she loves so much uh, floods, it breaks her heart because it kills all sorts of deer and fish and frogs and trees, tremendously destructive. And so it breaks her heart. But at the same time, it makes, excuse me, it makes her really happy because every time it floods, that's creating new habitat. And she had this line then, and this is the whole point of this. The line was, uh, every time a river floods, it's short-term habitat loss for long-term habitat gain. And when she said that to me, I immediately saw the psychological and social implications of that. That if we're not talking about a river, but that's a metaphor for social change or personal change, one of the reasons so many people don't change, why do we stay in bad relationships? Why do we stay in bad jobs? Why do we not work on our issues and let what happened to us when we were six still control us when we're 70? Why do we do all that? Well, because we're afraid of the short-term habitat loss for the long-term habitat gain. When I wrote A Language Older Than Words, I wrote almost all of that book completely sleep-deprived because the nightmares that had controlled my life up to that point, because of the trauma, the nightmares accelerated until I was terrified to go to sleep. I I couldn't get to sleep until dawn, and then I would... uh, like basically just skim the surface of sleep for a couple hours, waking up with hypnagogic. I thought I was going crazy because I was having hypnagogic illusions. Thank God I was in therapy. And my therapist said, nah, you're not going crazy when you see this evil dwarf standing in the corner of the room when you're It's like, that, that's, 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 he gave me the phrase hypnagogic illusion. This is something that just happens to people sometimes. So I was utterly sleep deprived writing that book. It was horrible. It was one of the worst experiences of my life not the writing of the book, but the, I feel like, I don't like calling them defense mechanisms because it's so mechanistic, but I, I'm going to use the term because I don't know what else to call them, but I feel like our defense mechanisms are almost living beings that don't want to die or who don't want to die. And so if you go to work on them, they will fight and scratch like a cornered animal and they will attempt to uh, they will attempt to stay alive. Or you can look at it that they kept you alive at one point, and now you don't trust that they're no longer needed. We can look at it however we want. But the point is, most people aren't going to go through that work on their own personal lives 
much less do it on the larger social scale, especially when we are socially rewarded for, because now we get computers and we got, we got access to streaming movies 24 seven and also access to ice cream 24 seven. Who wants to give that up? So there are powerful rewards. I mean, as well, and I shouldn't make fun of this because I had open heart surgery a couple of years ago, three years ago, I would be dead if it weren't for modern surgery. And that's a powerful motivator to maintain the system. You know, this is, none of this is new. You know, Daniel Quinn said many, many years ago that one of the problems is that we've created a way of life where we depend for our survival upon the system that's killing the planet. So we have physical survival where we get our food is not from the land, but from a grocery store. And then we have emotional survival. We have the identification. It's so, so interesting. When I say I want to bring down civilization, people will say to me, God, you must hate humans. And it's like, no, humans have lived without civilization. And in fact, I could say to you, you must hate humans because you want to make sure there aren't any here in 100 years. And so we identify this. Oh, another part of this that I think, see, this is why I'm so excited about this interrelationship between psychology, social change, ecology, all of them. I just, I totally get off on this particular uh, part of the Venn diagram. And oh, what was I going to say now that I went off on that? Um, oh, shoot. What was I saying just a moment ago? Well, you were saying that you, you the person who likes civilization must hate humanity because they're going to get oh, rid of them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay. So um, another part of this is that one of the central actions within any abusive situation is the abused victim, and I mean victim in this case, um, comes to identify with the oppressor. And why that happens in an abusive childhood, one of the reasons that happens is that the child's life depends not on making the child happy, nor on making the other victims happy, but on making the perpetrator happy. So, and one, you know, if there's, if there's three children in a family or four children in a family and they, uh, they don't have to care about the slight changes in musculature or emotion of their siblings. What they do have to care is the slight changes in musculature or slight changes in movement of the face of the perpetrator. So they come to identify more closely with the feelings. And plus, the perpetrator is the one who's winning. So, of course, you want to identify with them too. And so the same thing happens on a larger social scale. that We come to identify more. It's so interesting that it blows me away that you can have the New York Times, stolid scientists, all sorts of people saying, wow, humans could go extinct. Richard Dawkins saying humans could go extinct within the next 100 or 200 years because of the effects. But if they can say that blithely, and just last night on Facebook, some guy said, uh, yeah, I think the end of life, he literally said, I think the end of life on earth is just no big deal. Hey, 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 hey. Well, the dog obviously disagrees with that. Um, 
come here, come here, come here, come here, come here, come on. Anyway, um, they can say that, but then when I say we need to bring down civilization before it kills the planet, I'm crazy. Right. And the point is that they can imagine, in some cases, the end of humanity or the end of the age of mammals or the end of vertebrate evolution, or even the end of life on Earth, easier than they can imagine the end of civilization because they identify more closely with it. And it's not just, yeah, this is so true on so many levels, including the physical level, where I said earlier, you know, we are dependent for, I mean, that's, what did I have for dinner last night? Um, I had, uh, Oh, I had some potatoes and carrots and roast. I did buy the roast. I know where that came from because that was from a local cow. So at least that was from the land itself. But the carrots and tomato and potatoes were from the store. And again, that's not accidental. The laws of apartheid were written primarily to force people into the work economy. And um, we can get into that if you want. But the point is that we on many levels, end up identifying with the system and we're rewarded for identifying with the system more than with life on the planet. And that's... That, along with the the real work that it takes to break that identification with the system is, is one reason that the momentum is so fierce. Yeah. Yeah, we're addicted, and then also the apparent rewards. I mean, that's another sense of you know spiritual materialism, the old idea that we're trying to solve spiritual or whatever you want to call these problems, philosophical, psychological problems, through some material means. Like, if I can just get a Ferrari, then I'll be happy. It's obviously not so obvious as that sometimes, but sometimes it really is. You almost think to yourself, why did I even think that this pursuit was going to work? And you know, for the whole history, you can even look at what we refer to philosophy as a certain group of people's response to the thing we refer to as civilization. You know, Socrates comes in here and says, holy moly, we are really out of whack. Why is that? Because we're totally out of attunement with the way reality functions. Uh, Same thing with Buddha. You know, I mean, um, of course, in, in his case, in the case of Buddha, he was out there in nature resolving these problems. So it was some insight into the real nature of nature, as well as the nature of mind. But, um, yeah, that's that's part of what we do is we're trying to solve the problems through what seems like the easy way. It seems like it's so easy. I can just get this stuff and I'll be happy. But where you know, Socrates' life shows that no, you know, that's not what's going to make you happy. And I'm totally impervious to all the stuff that's going on around me that I see as a delusion. He just really wasn't buying it. But it's a lot harder for us, I think, because the level of addiction's gotten so deep. You know, I mean, we we need all these things. You know, that many of us wouldn't, wouldn't survive. Like if we did a fast drawdown, there'd be a lot of questions about how to help human beings get into some better situation, right? Like how do we navigate the sheer logistics of trying to get people okay? Oh, and if, if I were made dictator of humans, um, you know, I would not crash the system overnight. I would... Uh, I would... Um, attempt to i would start by and this is a difficult word it has it has it's 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 a word that carries a lot of negative baggage but i would rationalize the system by which i mean i would uh 
I would, um, you know, I would, the the first steps, I would recognize that capitalism requires subsidies, massive subsidies in order to continue. And I would switch those subsidies over to things that are life affirming. You know, it's like, I mean, the old thing, the old line about, about putting the, taking the money from the military and putting it into school buses or something, you know, that, that I would start there and I would, I would do a reasoned drawdown, um, you know, give reason, uh, sorry, reason drawdown of human behavior, not a drawdown ecologically means drawdown natural world. I would, I would, um, I mean, there are some things that could actually be done with policy that would be short, short-term solutions, not long-term solutions because the entire system has to go. But short-term, you know, it would be nice if we didn't uh, didn't didn't put in any more dams and started actually. I don't even, I don't care. You, you can pay the same construction companies to take them out. Um, and that's actually happening just south of here that the same people who have run bulldozers to push in roads for logging companies, those same people are being hired to help take out the dams on the Klamath. And I don't even care about justice in that case. It's like pay the same people. I couldn't care less. I just want the dams gone. Um, anyway, but the, the larger point really is that we're not doing those sorts of reasonable you know, and this is this is true on on every level. You know, I've I've read just boatloads of history, and and for a time in my twenties, I was I read boatloads on World War II, and I remember reading about some German generals complaining because their troops had winter clothing in uh, in warehouses but the troops were still wearing summer clothing as it's getting cold in Russia and they didn't have the trains to move them. But at the same time, there were still trains to, to take Jews to death camps and on a, or another example of this, that that really struck me when I was a teenager and and in my twenties reading about world war two is that when the Nazis invaded the Ukraine, they were welcomed as the Ukrainians hated the Russians and they were welcomed with, uh, you know, garlands and the, the, the tanks would roll into town and everybody's like cheering them on. And it didn't take very many massacres for that to turn around. And, and it just, it took, my point is that there, I think the phrase some people use is excess repression, that they're, their policies of occupation were not rational in terms of uh, they're, they're even, even given that they're invading another country, just grant them that um, they did it in a really stupid fashion because they had to, they basically created the partisans themselves by their, uh, by their atrocities. And my point is that that's self-destructive. That's what I'm getting at. And so much of the stuff that we see around us is just, it doesn't make any sense. So one thing that hit me, God, back in the 90s was when I first heard this. And it just, it, it just helped me to understand that the problems we face. Here's, here's another thing that's central to all of my work. 
because the problems we face are not fundamentally rational and therefore not susceptible to rational solution. And one great example of that is the world's commercial fishing fleets are subsidized to a value greater than their entire catch. And the entire world and all of us would be better off if all those same commercial, even though the people who run the commercial fishing fleet, just as <laughs> that's okay. There's a bear on the porch and there are always bears on the porch and the other dogs are used to it and he's only been here five days. So it's still an exciting thing for him. Right, right. Oh, that's fun. <laughs> um, <laughs> anyway, I'm going to back up a second. But the, um, the problems we face are not fundamentally rational and therefore not amenable to rational solution. Yeah. Um, and what I mean by that Oh, so yeah, the, we'd all be better off if the capitalists just were given the same amount of money for everybody to stay home. The world, the, the oceans wouldn't be getting killed quite so fast. Right. Um, same with so much logging doesn't make any sense that the public lands logging in the United States uh, loses money. So federal taxpayers are paying to deforest public lands. It's just, it doesn't make any sense. Right. And um, and it's the same with, with, I mean, I understand, you know, with an abusive situations, I understand how it does make sense on small scales and the same with, with <laughs> oh, you settle down, settle down, settle down, settle down. Poor little guy. Just exciting. On a certain scale, it it makes sense. Yeah. I understand how, you know, Lundy Bancroft has an interesting book. Why does he do that inside the minds of anger and controlling men? Uh And he talks about how perpetrators of domestic violence don't lose their temper because if they actually lost control, they would beat up their boss or they would beat up a cop. But instead, he says that they're making rational decisions. And and I think the same thing is true. So I say the problems not fundamentally rational, but they are in a sense in that if you don't care about relationship, but all you care about is getting your way, then uh, then it can make sense to do I mean, th- this is also an interesting thing that, that that leads us to a problem with engineering, for example, that, um, you know, reading Robert J. Lifton and reading other people, that they would just have a technical problem of, the Nazis would have a technical problem of, okay, so how are you going to, there was tremendous alcoholism among the the groups of soldiers who were, shooting Jews face-to-face. So as a technical problem, how do you solve it? Well, you could do it by not shooting Jews, but that was off the table. So instead, they created the mobile killing bans. Well, then they have a problem with the mobile killing bans where you pump carbon monoxide into the back um, because you end up with all sorts of uh, liquids on the bottom of the thing, which is people pee themselves and poop themselves when they're dying. So then they had to make sluice gates, little little drains effectively. 
And the, the point is that it all became a series of engineering questions with nobody asking the larger question of whether we should be doing it in the first place. And I see the same thing with the murder of the planet that we come up with. This takes us back to bright green lies. It's like, okay, how can we get more electricity for the bauxite smelters that we want to run? Like, well, do we, does the planet really want another bauxite smelter? Do we really want another bauxite smelter? And there's a great line about this too, by um, George Mambio uh, had this line wrote this 10, 12 years ago about um, how this is why he was not in favor of wind and solar, but was in favor of nuclear or something. How else are we going to get the electricity that we need to run our brick factories? And I said, let's change a couple lines and see how this reads, which is how are the capitalists going to get the electricity they need to run their brick factories? And it reads entirely differently. That's that identification we're talking about earlier. Yeah, and and it's uh, he's a good example because there were times when I I'm really puzzled by things that he says, and other times I think, okay, really excellent, reliable analysis. You know, I mean, he just, um, yeah, it's very common, isn't it? And that's that's that idea that we're our thinking. We don't realize that we're um, we're so often thinking that our thinking is ours, and meanwhile, no, we're thinking the thoughts of larger ecologies of mind, and some of those ecologies of mind are not so healthy, and some of them are. And so some, somehow both wisdom and ignorance can be thinking in a larger ecology of mind. You know, ideally, it's, in its best case, it's wisdom. I was wondering if part of this, you know, you at, at, toward the end of your book, you, you know, you start with, I really enjoy, uh, to a certain degree, the, the, the way you kind of give the, you kind of, you directly confront some of the thinking. And uh, Naomi Klein figures as a, a sort of running, uh, ironic jab. And uh, you have her uh, in the film, which I didn't see um, because I, I wasn't interested, but maybe I should have because you, you watched it with a good critical mind. But you quote her, she says, I've been, more, uh, I've been to more climate rallies than I can count, but the polar bears, they still don't do it for me. I wish them well, but if there's one thing I've learned, it's that stopping climate change isn't really about them. It's about us. And, and then, of course, there are other people, like even Kumi Naidu, uh, former head of Greenpeace International and other, other people talking like this. I wonder if, though, because at the end of the book, you say that, that was like, that's the most important passage of the book in a, in, in a, in a way, you know, that it's expressing this, this uh, kind of infected consciousness that then fil- everything's filtered through that. I wonder if there's some way in which, though, um, is is there a positive sense in which maybe some of those people are just trying to connect people with something they care about because they don't yet care about the world the way you do? You know, you have a lot of um, empathic or compassionate connection to sentient beings, you know, even going back to being a child. And you said, well, you know, when they cleared this meadow, I wondered where all the snakes were going to go. And you were, what, eight years old or something? They were building like a shopping mall or what was it? Subdivision. Subdivision. And your your thought was, well, where are all the beings going to go who live there? That's their home. And I, maybe a lot of people, just because they've been infected with this consciousness, they don't think that way. Do you, Is there a sense in which if we gave them a very charitable reading, they're trying to find a way to get people to say, well, do you care about your kids, don't you? And then you, you, you follow the thread and your kids have to have clean oceans and, and it turns out they have to be with these other beings too. Or do you think there's just too much problematic with the way they're using that? I 
I think it's both. Like everything we've talked about today is it ends up being both and. Uh Um, But I think that if they were in this room, they would probably argue partly that, um, look, I just want to get people to act. But the problem is that if your loyalty is to... I mean, I agree also that long-term anthropocentrism is the same as biocentrism because we need a livable planet. But the problem is that what they're advocating for is not going to help humans long-term either. It's not that wind and solar, for for reasons we can get into another time, are just, they will not replace, and they're not replacing coal. I just saw a thing a couple days ago that, fossil fuel use is the highest this year it's ever been. It's, it's not. And we can talk about Jevons paradox, which briefly is that if you, every time you, the way it applies here is every time you bring on a new energy source, it adds to, as opposed to replaces a previous one. Right. So none of that's helpful, but, but that doesn't alter the fact. I mean, it goes back to one of the most important books I ever read was Neil Evenden's The Natural Alien. Love that book. And in there he has, um, he says the problem that environmentalists face in a profoundly nature-hating culture is, um, well, he gives this example. He says, so let's say you're a lawyer, and this is completely hypothetical and it wasn't how things work, but let's say you're a lawyer in 19th century Jim Crow South. And the laws are that if, a person is 1% white, then they have a different uh, set of laws or apply to them than if, they, than if they're 100% black. And that's where the whole thing falls apart because it was actually, if you're 1% black, there'd be different laws. But, but let's go with this because it's all a thought experiment. He says, so you're an attorney and your client is innocent, but in any case, they're going to be tried. Do you try to show that your client is 1% white and therefore should be judged under a different set of laws? Or do you say these laws are ridiculous and harmful and in so doing watch your client get hanged? The point is you can, and he's saying this in terms of environmental stuff that he calls us, I believe the environmentalist dilemma that what we have to do is we have to say, look, you have to protect this creature because of how useful it is for humans. But in so doing, you are reinforcing the narcissism that is, in fact, killing the planet. And so if, if all of us, you know, you, me, Naomi Klein, Bill McKibben, if we're all in a room and we're having an honest conversation about this, if they brought that up, then if, if they brought up your point, then I would bring up the point I just made and say, is it actually helpful to, because we know in abusive situations, it really doesn't work to appeal to the perpetrator's uh, narcissism because it's the narcissism that's creating the problem in the first place. And so if you say, 
look, you're going to be better off. I mean, it, it's true. And I mean, this is another thing. This is, this is, I want to be really clear about this because it's so easy for this to be misconstrued. But I remember when I was just a teenager and the, in my twenties and learning about, you know, rape culture and meeting women who had been sexually assaulted and on one level um, a woman being sexually assaulted, yes, it can cause her to become a survivor out of control, which is what patriarchy is really aiming for is to turn the, to turn women into willing slaves for men. I mean, that's, that's a whole another huge topic that we're entering as we're closing down here. But, um, but also I have known women who were sexually assaulted, who then became afraid of sex. And I was thinking, you know, on one level, I mean, let's just drop all that off and say, you know, there, there are 80% of the women I think in Sudan have been sexually mutilated, have their genitals mutilated. And it seems to me that that's just a, that if you, what you want is a willing sexual partner, uh, that's just a bad idea. You know, that if, if the woman is getting pleasure out of it, she's going to presumably be more interested in it. And it just, it's, so it's, my point is it's like the, it's like the oppressing the, the Ukrainians by the Nazis, that it's, it's just, it's counterproductive. And all this stuff is counterproductive, except when you get, help me out here. You, you finish my sentence for me because I mean, this is in your wheelhouse too. <laughs> yeah, sure. I think that you, you are really just saying that it's more important to address the deeper root cause and be honest about the nature of reality rather than trying to seduce people. It's just that I certainly understand the reasons why. So when I used to teach, um, and I, you know, for, for health reasons, I was a vegan for a long time. For health reasons, I ended up um, going back to eating meat when I was a vegan. And still, you know, even after I wasn't anymore, I would talk to students about our diet and how that contributes to climate issues. And one of the things that I would sometimes ask people is, you know, when you think about the way that you eat right now, and you think about your highest values, which I would always have students think about, you know, what are my one or two or three highest values, like what I really think I want my life to be about? How does what you eat relate to your highest values? How is it as an expression of it? And they would essentially, a lot of them would say, I've changed my diet. Some of them became vegan, some of them became vegetarians, but, but frequently just by saying, well, how does this really reflect on your highest values? It's almost like a way of getting in, in between the two, right? It's that if we're human centric and we can't just love the redwood forest, if I'd get you to think, okay, but do you love your kids? If that's one of your highest values is loving your kids, then how does what you how you live relate to that? It's almost like there's a way you could do both at the same time. But I understand your concern. The way they talk makes it sound like, ah, to hell with the planet. And that just doesn't seem like very careful rhetoric. I mean, it really doesn't seem to do what we wanted to do. Which is part of the problem also. I mean, Kumi Naidu, you mentioned him, and he literally says the planet doesn't need saving. Right. I know. I know. And from a certain degree, yes, I understand that there have been massive extinctions. Earth will still be here. She will be here in some form. But you're right. It's still like a horrific um, shirking of our responsibility to beings we totally depend on and who every single day spend, they give all their 
body and soul to making our life possible. Why in the world should we not think that we have to do something to ensure that their life continues to be possible? It's really a weird way of putting it. Um, so let's, let's, okay. I would love to do this again sometime. This has been really fun. Yeah. Um, so I need to run some errands. So why don't you ask me a quick wind down question? Okay. Well, um, what, what, what do you think? Goodness. What what is a question people aren't asking you, you wish they were, or you can just tell me what you're excited about right now. Either either one. (laughs) Well, this isn't an answer to either of those questions. But it's it's still sort of back to what we were just talking about a moment ago. That one of the things that I find, if I could get one, if I could get people to do one thing that would change everything, it would be to switch their loyalty away from the system, and to life on Earth, and or to the land where they live. Um, and then, once you do that, everything else becomes technical. Everything else, you know, it's like I've been in. Like say you're say you're say you're in a relationship, and um, one thing that my therapist said to me one time was that a relationship can survive when one person is triggered and the other person is still an adult, or it can be triggered. It can survive when the other person is triggered and the first person's an adult. But what where problems really get created in relationship was when both people are acting out at the same time. And so often I've been in a relationship where and it doesn't matter, friend, romantic, whatever, where both of us start getting things start escalating over something trivial. And we are both uh you know we're both back to being seven years old and and just responding to things that are all out of are incommensurate with the the original insult happens sometimes in best case scenario one or the other of us can step back and say wait a second this is really spiraling out of control can we just can we just stop for a second and look at and, and break down which of these are technical issues and which of these are emotional issues? How much of this was because I was five minutes late showing up and how much of this is because, you know, when you were seven, blah, 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 blah. I mean, don't, you don't use the other person for that. That just makes it worse. You have to say how much of it was because when I was seven, you know, right. But the, right. But the point is it's the same with the larger issue that, once we switch our loyalty over to the natural world, and once we decide, once we remember that the natural world is, is relevant and we're saving, then it just becomes. And I want to bring up one more thing, too, which is, and this will really, I think, tie things together, that spiritual materialism, is that what it's called? Yes. Um, a great example of Buddhism being misused is early in my career, I would have some Buddhists, and this really pissed me off, I would have some some Buddhists say to me, um, you know, Derek, you need to learn non-attachment because you're so attached to the salmon, but you need to recognize that the salmon are just 
a blinking of God's eyebrows or a movement of God's eyebrows. And, and it doesn't really matter if they go extinct, which is always really convenient when it's somebody else. But, you know, if you put a knife to your own throat, we'll see if you have the same attitude. Or if they're going to kill, kill your kid, we'll see if you have the same attitude. Anyway, um, that really bothered me for many years until I finally realized that there is really truth to the non-attachment. And there's certainly truth to our own lives that ultimately I have to recognize that I'm going to die, you know? So ultimately I have to be non-attached to my own life, which doesn't mean that if somebody came in here right now and was going to shoot me and I had a gun and I shot them first, I mean, it's, it doesn't mean I have to give up right this second, but it, it means at some point, you know, at some point I'm not going to be here. And the, but the other thing that's even more important is it was non-attachment to the wrong thing, that what we need to be not attached to is the internet and computers and car culture. I can use a car. I can drive a car. It doesn't matter. I mean, people say, oh, gosh, I'm stopping global warming by not driving a car. No, it's like individual car use is really irrelevant. Um, but what's important is for us not to be attached to car culture and to not be attached to the system itself. And again, I mean, ultimately, you know, my mom died three years ago and ultimately see, that's part of the problem too, is that so often this not attachment. And I know this from experience because having been abused and emotions being really scary, I glommed onto this non-attachment thing as a teenager, as an excuse not to feel because Oh, yeah, I'm not actually attached to um, whether anybody likes me. I'm not actually attached to, um, and, and it's the same, you know, and, and ultimately I have to not be attached to my mom's life because she did die. But at the same time, it was the hardest, most horrible thing I've ever been through in my life. It was incredibly painful and traumatic. And I have to not be attached to not being attached, you know, it's. Yeah. Yeah. And we're getting off into weeds again. So I think I would love to do this again. This has been, this is, this is one of my favorite interviews. I, I had a terrible interview a couple of weeks ago and this has been great to, I mean, I was okay. Actually, the interview was terrible and it's okay if you put that out too, because the guy was a jerk. Okay. Um, um, but, but this has been a really great one and it's removed the, the foul taste in my mouth. Oh, well, that's good. Yeah, it would be lovely to, to have uh, some more dialogue another time. So yeah, we'll keep in touch. I really appreciate your time, Derek. Thanks a lot. And thank you so much for your work. Really appreciate it. Thank you. And it's, it's, you're a great interviewer, too. Oh, thanks. All right, my friend, enjoy your day. And all of you, enjoy your day, too. We released this interview on Earth Day 2022. So no matter when you listen to it, you might want to listen with greetings and gratitude to the community of life we all depend on. And you might want to look for other episodes that go along with this one, like the interview with ecologist Chad Hansen discussing his book on wildfire myths. Of course, all our contemplations have an ecological spirit. Sometimes we look at it from a more subtle and broad perspective, and sometimes we get into the kinds of issues Derek and I spoke about. But in all cases, wisdom is inherently ecological, wonderful, and wild. And we generally look at 
philosophical matters, the matters of our life, how we live, and what's the best way to live, how can we live skillfully. Wisdom is what works. And so we look at it as an overlap, that spiritual realities are ecological realities, which in turn are, in fact, a kind of magical reality. If you have questions, reflections, or stories related to ecology, bright green lives, and how we can make a transition into sanity and sacredness, magic and mystery, compassion and courage, creativity and insight, get in touch through dangerouswisdom.org and we might bring some of them into a future of contemplation. Until then, this is Dr. Nikos, your friendly neighborhood soul doctor, reminding you that your soul and the soul of the world are not two things. Take good care of them.